Yes, people, that's right. Gotta keep on moving, and that's what I'm doing. We're back for another episode of Echoes from the Void. Episode 28, people, 28. You know what I mean? The voice is still kind of fucked, but that ain't gonna break my stride. I'm still gonna bring you one of the dopest podcasts out there. Like, you know, we're definitely not a, 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 a Joe Rogan experience, but we, I, we, we're we finding our niche. We're, we're growing, we're evolving, we're changing. So, yeah, 2019's gonna be big. So, gonna bring some changes to the format, you know what I mean? But, yeah, we're, we're here, man, we're here. Um, I, I'm gonna tell you out the gate, this is going to be a long episode. So, I'm apologising, I try and keep it, you know, a, a pretty, pretty uniform. But, th- this one got away with me. Only because I've been out to a few things and they've had Q&As. So I was like, yo, let me bring the Q&As to the people. So we've got, um, there was a, a, a screening of episodes from the new season of Catastrophe. Um, so we're going to have those for you. You know, we got the Q&A from that. And also, there was a conversation with Roxanne Gay, and I got the Q&A from that as well. So, although it's long, it's going to have flavor, and it's going to have stuff you're going to want to hear. So, you know what I mean? Stay tuned. And also, I'm going to end it again, still, because we still got a little time before Christmas, with a a, a kick-ass HelloFresh offer. That will give you 10% off of a Christmas box that has all the trimmings and will take all the hassle out of your Christmas meal prep. So, you know, I'm keeping the news short so we can get into it. All right. So, let's go. Okay. So, I'm I, I saw this article on the BBC website it's another one in the BBC 100 women series and it's infuriating it's another ridiculous like ill thought of peace this one is from a media strategist Mathilde Suscon something like that um, and she is talking about engagement rings and how they're anti-feminist, they're a detriment to womankind, they make women passive, they make women property, and this is her narrative, you know, she's saying that she's never wanted an engagement ring, she's been married twice, she doesn't want one, she may marry again, and she's not coveting this ring, and doesn't know why other people do, and this is the thing, But, see, now, the problem with this is, right, firstly, you're you're forgetting that so many people want one of these things, you know, so many women do want an engagement ring, and they don't view it as making them cattle, chattel, 
doesn't impact their feminism. You know what I mean? But I think the problem, which should I don't see why she's not kind of just addressing, balance out the situation. This is the thing. Look, why does it have to be a one-sided thing? You know, like if if a, if the man buys the woman an engagement ring, why doesn't the woman do something nice for the man? That equals out the situation. So why not look at it like that? If you want to talk about equality, make this situation equal. So, when you get engaged, you ju- you both exchange something. You know what I mean? Like, look, if you if if rings aren't your thing, it doesn't have to be a ring. You know, you just exchange something that you both like, something that both kind of is meaningful for you too. Like I've I've had like uh, two of my great friends, they got these rings carved out of wood. They're these incredible rings, and it's like two trees coming together, entwined that really kind of show a relationship. So there's not these huge diamonds. But they thought of something that was really nice and got each other these rings. So, look, you can do something like that, you know. Just have it so, look, more girls, just propose to your dude. Like, I remember, I I, I knew this girl. She was a friend of a girl I I was dating. And she really wanted her boyfriend to propose to her. And she had been wanting it for ages. And he's just like, look, do it. You do it. Because frankly, if anyone was going to get bent out of shape because you proposed to him, then I think that kind of shows he's an ass and not worth the time of day anyway. So, yeah, stop with the whole bullshit about, oh, this is, you know, anti-feminist. This is suffragation. This is, you know, it's not. Calm the fuck down. It's a ring. You know what I mean? It doesn't, look, people put things upon stuff that is nothing, that is harmless. So just take that shit back. You know what I mean? Make it something that means something to you. And yeah, look, someone gives you a ring, give them something nice back. You know, you want to get married, you propose. Don't leave it to the dude, you propose. Just make this whole shit equal. This is the thing. Everyone's talking about equality. There needs to be more equality. Well, make this fucking situation equal. So think about that, goddammit. So, 
in some really insane news, Kevin Hart gets given the role to host the Oscars, which is huge. So he's going to be hosting the Oscars. Kevin Hart is one of the biggest comedians in the world. So, you know what I mean? It makes complete and utter sense. But then, just a couple of days later, he no longer is hosting the Oscars, which is insane. Insane. I, he, he's, he made jokes, like, I don't know, eight years ago, eight years ago, and, um, yeah, those people have, like, found old tweets and stuff that he made all that time back, and are going, look, he's homophobic, he should, and, and, look, this is the thing, he, he was trying to be funny at the time, Kevin Hart isn't homophobic, that, that, you know, if Kevin Hart was homophobic, he wouldn't be the number one comedian in the world, you know, because, People would have stopped going to his shows. People would have picketed his shows. You know, it would have been a whole big thing then. It's only because he was given the hosting role for the Oscars that um, you know, this shit has come out. Because, like, these tweets were there. They'd been there. So if people were really bent out of shape about it, they would have brought this up a long time ago. So it's a bit odd that it's only now that they've done it. And it makes no sense for the Academy to be all crazy about it. Because this look, if you're going to get a comedian to host your award, you have to know that, yeah, that the shit was is gonna be said at some point. There's gonna be something that they've said over the course of their career that someone could poke a hole at. And when I say someone could poke a hole at, I mean an asshole could try and use to insinuate some bullshit. Because that's what this is. Look, people are just, they don't like other people to succeed. So they're using anything to try and bring them down. It is like, you can't tell me that you haven't said something years back that you probably think, yeah, that was probably a bit foolish. Or, ooh, that, you know what I mean? If people looked at that now, yeah, that's a bit risque. You know what I mean? Like, everyone has done it. 
I know for sure that I've had conversations with friends. And we have, you know what I mean? They, like, shit has been said purely in jest. Because you're trying to make motherfuckers laugh. So I have said some ridiculous things. You know what I mean? Because I'm trying to make people laugh. Like, I have done some ridiculous things for jokes. Do you know what I mean? Like, I called up someone once pretending to be a dad. Saying that he got my, my girl pregnant. You know what I mean? I, I have said, I have done the most ridiculous things. But it's all about the joke. And sometimes you, you, you swing and you miss. But, but uh, sometimes you swing and you connect and you hit that motherfucker out the park. So it's about taking you mean know, those chances and let you know let, let's look at it as well. Like people love I think it's one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right? The amount of times the N word is used in the beginning of that book. You know? But that book was written at a time. So I'm not going to be like, that book should not be published. It's ridiculous. It's racist. It's terror. No, because it was written at a time. It's like, um, you know, Huckleberry Finn and, and uh, you know, those books. I had some racist shit in those books, man. But they were written in a time. So are we going to go back on everything now? Everything. It's like everyone loves the first Rocky film. You know, everyone loves the Rocky films in general. But he basically rapes Adrian in the alleyway. You know what I mean? He basically rapes Adrian. So are we going to say Sylvester Stallone... You are now banned from Hollywood. You know? Is is that what we are doing? Because there is so much shit. We could go back to the 80s. And people are going down. You look at some of the films that are made. People have said things in these films. That are worse than Kevin Hart's tweets. Are we going to take those people? Are those people never going to work again? So, what is the statute of limitations of this thing? And are we only going after certain people? You know what I mean? Should we go down, uh, uh, go after everyone? Like, so what is happening here? Because this is ridiculous. Look, if someone says something now, fine. But if they've said something like 10 years ago, Calm the fuck down, people. You know what I mean? Calm the fuck down.
And you little pussies sitting around trying to hunt and look for tweets and information, Facebook posts, all that jazz. Get a life, you fucking wanna be hurt little fucking assholes. Get a life. Okay, so man, today has been it's been interesting. You know, um still very ill and you know, I just couldn't go into work, man. I was just like crashed all day. But I had tickets for the South Bank and I'm just like Man, I, I you know what I mean? So like if I if I don't go, it's a waste. So I dragged myself out and I'm extremely glad I did because it was a conversation with Roxanne Gay. Um and it was such a great evening. You know what I mean? Two Mondays in a row had the chance to be in a room with people that have such enlightening thoughts, um, and you know, I didn't even realize this, it's kind of shocking, but this was Roxanne's first UK appearance, so it was a little bit of a cue, coup, coup, for the South Bank Center, so that was just great, but Roxanne, you know, she's written, um, just heaps of stuff, you know, she's renowned for her sensitivity, humor, honesty, um, her frank personal explorations of feminism, race, body image, and pop culture. You know, she's written, um, yeah, several books. Um, so she's done Bad Feminist, An Untamed State. Uh, she's got, um, a series of short stories called uh, Atiti. Um, she's a difficult woman, and her new book, Hunger, which is a memoir of her body. Um, so, yeah, and on top of all of that, yo, she's written for Marvel. Like, Takeshi Coates contacted her directly to get her to write Worlds of Wakanda, which, um, man, I, I think it was, I, I think it was, I think it went 12 issues, so it was kind of a, a limited series that dealt with characters from the main series, mainly, um, from the Dora Manche, uh, and that was great, you know what I mean, like, Yo, there's this great author, novelist, and then she's like writing Marvel comics. And the whole um, thing was, uh, it was curated by Liv Little, who is an audio producer, a filmmaker, and an editor in chief at Galdem, a fledgling media empire runs exclusively by women and non-binary people of color um and she's currently working as a digital executive 
at the BBC and she contributes for LUK. So, you know, the, uh, of course, this was going to... It's going to be something, man. You know, like straight away, you knew this was going to be an extremely interesting evening. And it lived up to everything, if not excelled it. Because I think gay is so unapologetically truthful, you know? she she's crazy open about everything and she is going to tell you just the, the truth the truth from things not like there's some people that say i'm just saying as it is who just want who you know just use it as a reason to talk shit but with gay you know what I mean? you know she's just talking about things, you know, obviously from her perspective, but, you know, if if she's kind of in the wrong, she'll talk about, she'll say it, but you know what I mean, but she will say it all, there's no sugarcoating here, you know, which is very refreshing, you know, it was funny, like, she was talking how she loves reality TV, you know, she, she's like, all the Real Housewives, the Vanderpump, Vander, Vanderpump Rules, whatever the fuck that is. You know, she watches all them shows and loves them. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, sometimes you have people, especially like authors and, and, and film directors and things like that. And they'll always be like, oh, no, I, I read Tchaikovsky and... You know, listen to Bach and blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and it's just like, look, we know you listen to and do other things. Say it. No one's judging here. But gay don't give a fuck, man. She'd just be like, yep, that's what I like. Love those things. Saying how she um kind of followed Love Island through a friend's Instagram posts and stuff. So, you know, we, we, we got it kind of just straight away, out the gate. She was just like, boom, this is me. You know, she talked about how she became the writer on World of War- Wakanda. And when Coates, like, contacted her, she didn't, like, she just couldn't equate it to be working for the actual Marvel comics. And she was just thinking, oh, isn't this weird that this little publisher's got the same name as Marvel that's so crazy and when he emailed her she's just like wait how the hell did Marvel not own Marvel.com and this little publisher's got Marvel.com and then when she went to um you know she went to the URL and then discovered oh shit it is Marvel and so Coates contacted and and told her like you know this is what I'd like you know us to work on and yeah she just went from there and she told this story about these characters the, the you know this love story but she said look it was important that there was no trauma in that story 
you know, that this was just from love. And, and, you know, like no one was raped, no one was beat up, no one, you know what I mean? Because a lot of stories about, you know, I, I, I think gay love come from those spaces. And it and so it gives this slanted view on things, like oh okay, the these two girls are in love. Obviously, you know one of them has come from a rape or a molestation or a blah blah blah. And it's just like look, that's not how it is all the time, you know. Like and if you looked at a percentage, probably most of the time. But we're only given this small narrative on things. And and so yeah, that's why that was important to her. And yeah, you could tell that she just thoroughly enjoyed her time working on that book. So that was really interesting. Uh, yeah, talking about how how she um, would like to eat Tannen Chayton. <laughs> this 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 crazy stuff like that, you know, but. It was like she was talking about like body confidence and like how you know she struggled with it and how having the she had like um a gastric surgery and how it was the best thing she's done because it's now allowing her to do more things. And uh, like she said, all right, and now she can wear cute clothes and shit. So, you know, but then she talked about how people attack her because of it. You know, because she's talked about how, you know, she's been frustrated with her body. People will be like, oh, how can you say that? You're meant to be a feminist. You're meant to be this. You're meant to be. And it's just like, what the fuck is that? You know what I mean? It's just like, look. It doesn't, it's not all one way. And and they think this is one of the things that she was talking about throughout. You know, that it's not just one way traffic on all these topics. Like people want to talk about feminism. People want to talk about body confidence. People want to talk about race, you know, sexuality. But a lot of the times the conversation is, well, obviously it's this. And it's be like, well, yeah, it can be that, but then it can be a whole myriad of other things as well. And, you know, people aren't honest about this. She's a bit like how some feminists be like, yo, I'm a feminist, but I believe in, you know, uh, pro-life. But. You know, she she's but then she's just like, look, that that's kind of fair, but you know, really, you you should be jumping that women have full control over their bodies, and I I you know what I mean I think you can be that and pro life, you know what I mean. But I think the main thing is, no one should dictate to a woman what she does with her body, you know. Like, it, if she's been, I, I, you know, there's a, the, the pregnancy comes through many different ways. 
and not all of them welcome so if someone wants to you know take away that hurt that came from that situation they should be you know they should be allowed to it's important you know we can't lock people into uh, you know the, these old mindsets but yeah you know I think she also talked about um, how when she writes like she's not writing for anyone else she's writing for her you know yeah, and I think she's like, look, that's where a lot of people fall down because they're trying to write for all these other people. But, you know, you don't know if what you're writing is going to catch fire. You don't know how many people are going to read it. So how are you writing for these people that you don't even know will actually read it? So if you're writing just for you, and you love what you've written, then I think that that equates to then the greater should appreciate it. Because, you know, if you turn out something that you don't like, how the fuck do you expect anyone else to like it, you know? And, um, you know, she talks about how, look, it's all up for her, it's about barriers. And she puts up barriers about what she can write about, who she writes about, you know, and and so by doing that, it protects the parts of her life that are important to her, like, she's not going to write about, you know, her relationships, she's not going to write about her family, in, like, negative ways, and things like that, and she talked about how, there was one time that she did write about an old, an old girlfriend, and that the girlfriend wrote to her and said, "Look, you know, all these things you've said are true. I cheated on you. I did, yeah, I did those things. But you were a part of this relationship too. You brought things to the relationship too." And then she was just like, "You know what?" she was right, because what I put across in my story was only one facet of the situation, and so, you know, it's like, if you're going to write about certain things, you have to write about everything, but because it's coming from you, you're going to be a little bit biased, so she doesn't include those things in her writing at all, to make it fair, it was really just enlightening to hear her talk about all these different subjects, you know, and again, it was just like, it was similar to um, Michelle Obama's talk, but everyone in the room was just completely tuned in, you know, there was no attention anywhere else and so you could 
feel everyone just soaking in everything that she was saying, like, you know what I mean, picking up on just her, her mindset, and her way of viewing topics in the world, that was just different to, to how normally you hear people talk, um, and and so I think that was the real great thing of the night, and just the way everyone left, just buzzing, everyone was just buzzing, uh, yeah, it was really good, um, one weird thing, someone brought their baby in, and so for a bit there was this baby just howling its head off, and uh, like no one really knew what to uh, what to do, you know what I mean? Because it's just like they're trying to talk, and you're just hearing this baby like wah, 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 and it's like oh shit. So I don't know if the woman took the baby out, if she was asked to step out for a minute. I have no clue, but eventually the baby shut up, which was good but um there was a Q&A afterwards uh which was really interesting and um yeah I uh, I taped it I missed the first question it wasn't a great one so you weren't missing anything but um yeah this is the Q&A um and um hope you find it interesting <laughs> specifically within fatness and fat identity as 
it also has its own set of intersections as everything else does. Um, as somebody who's, I don't know, maybe like a mid-size fat person, <laughs> uh, so like I'm a UK 24, so like a US 20, um, I know that there's lots of things that I'm able to do that people who are fatter than me can't, but then I also have the same feelings about people who are more able-bodied or in a different kind of able-disabled, which is another intersectionality within. But I wondered if you had any specific advice around intersectional politics on how we might better support each other to become better activists, to become better allies for each other within these intersections of not only fatness but race and queerness and disability and class as well. Yeah, I think we just have to be more mindful. I think a lot of times when we're thinking about marginalization, we become very narrow and very singular-minded, and we tell ourselves this oppression matters the most without recognizing that people contain multitudes and that you're not just living in a fat body, but you're also coded by race, gender, sexuality, class, and things like that. And especially within the fatness movement, a lot of people tend to think that because we're all fat, we're all the same. Yeah. And we're simply not. And I try to push back against that quite a lot because um, a lot of fat activists got really pissed off when I wrote Hunger because they were like, there's too much self-loathing in the book. And I was like, you're a size 18. How dare you? When you've been a size 42, you can't, you have no idea what my life is like. You have no idea. And um, I had to push back about that. And then um, in January of this year, I got weight loss surgery. And I got even more pushback. But again, people weren't using empathy to consider what would make someone do something this drastic. And um, so I just try to be as mindful as possible. I certainly have a chip on my shoulder that I'm trying to knock off in terms of smaller hats. But <laughs> because it's just like, oh, don't cry to me. But that's not the best part of me. The best part of me recognizes that it's not easy at any size. And quite frankly, um, the biggest surprise in hunger has been that sometimes incredibly thin women have come to me and just said, I related to everything you wrote. And I look at them and think, really? <laughs> but then I really listen. And I recognize that just to be in a body in this world is really difficult. And if we remember that and not try to Create a oppression Olympics around it, we would all do a lot better. Thank you. Hi, Roxanne from Hollywood Western from Iowa. Thank you. Hi, I have a two-point question about the housewives. My first one is, which housewife city do you wish would read your books? And second, which housewives would you wish the city that you would love to hang out with the most? Oh, I would love to hang out with Atlanta. Yeah. Oh, the best city, arguably. And I would love the housewives of Beverly Hills to read my book, to read any book. <laughs> Do you write anonymously at all? And second, 
when things happen politically or socially or national or international level, what do you choose and how do you choose to respond to those things? Great questions. I have written under several different names over the years, but now I only write under my name. Uh, and in terms of responding to the world, I always ask myself on a case-by-case -case basis, do I have more to contribute as a listener or as a writer? And if I don't have a good answer to that question, then I don't respond. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, I listen to Hunger as an audiobook um, that you wrote yourself. Um, is it easy, or do you enjoy reading it, or is it quite traumatic to revisit that experience to read it out again? It was fun, actually. It's not a fun subject, but I was, I wrote the book when I was ready to write the book, so it wasn't traumatizing to read it at all. Um, I enjoyed it, and I knew that I didn't want anyone else reading that book. It's too personal, and it would have just made me deeply uncomfortable to have someone else reading my words and my story. So I loved it, and I'm excited to do it again. Hi, Roxanne, uh, another Midwesterner here. Really glad that Indiana has her voice, and I think Purdue's really lucky to, to have you there. Um, my question is about creativity, and I'm just curious, when you need ideas for writing, what do you do to strengthen your own creativity? Huh. It really depends. I have this file on my laptop, well, on whatever computer I'm looking at, called Beginnings and Ideas, and anytime I think I have something that's clever or interesting, I put it in there, and when I'm bereft of creativity, I go back to that file and look for something to inspire me to do something. But I also just, I'm a quiet person in life, and so I tend to always be paying attention, and the world fascinates me, people fascinate me. I love to watch people, I love to just sit in a room and sit against the wall and just take it all in, and that always inspires me. I see someone brush their hair a certain way, or smile, or say something, and I just think, there's a story there, and I want to know more about it. And so I just try to always stay as connected to the world as possible. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Short Curtis. Hi, Roxanne. <laughs> um, I think you touched upon these issues before with other questions, but I'm an African German writer, and a lot of things that I that people keep asking me always is, who do you write for? And I try to delegitimize um, my positioning, and I feel like this is something that a lot of women of color deal with. Um, how do you deal with that question? Oh, and I write for myself, and I say that. And of course, I write for myself. I mean, who else am I going to write for? As a writer, you never know if you're going to make it. So for me. It's what do I have to say about this, and how do I want to say it? And just the pleasure of writing, even when I'm writing about difficult things, the act of writing is deeply soothing. In many ways, I consider it self-medication. And so when people ask me, who are you writing for, they always want some sort of manufactured response about, oh, I write for people that look like me and make the world a better place, and it's great if you write for those reasons. Um, but I'm selfish. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, um, question for Hi, um, I love 
an essay that you wrote about your weight loss surgery. I thought it was really powerful. And I'm wondering, because I loved hunger and the way you described it about writing within the experience without having a solution, how your relationship with your body has changed since that surgery? I'm in the middle of it. It's only been, um, been about 11 months. It's wild because the thing about weight loss surgery is that you lose a massive amount of weight really quickly. And so every single day, my clothes fit differently, my body moves differently, people respond to me differently. Like the ways in which people have already started behaving nicer to me is grotesque because it's just like, really? Now I'm listening? Um, and so I really, struggling to keep track of it all. And so what I'm doing is actually, my best friend told me to do this, which is to just take notes. I don't know if it's gonna become anything, but because I'm in the middle of it, I'm just trying to document as much of the experience and the kinds of things that I'm noticing in terms of my own body and how I feel in it, and in terms of how I feel when I leave my home. Um, like I wouldn't have known this trip a year ago. I know that for sure. And so it's really interesting and mind-blowing and. Um, I'm really conflicted about it because the surgery is the best thing I've ever done, but I, I also think it's horrible that the world drove me to that point where you really change your internal anatomy forever. It's just, I don't know, I'm deeply conflicted, but also excited because I can wear cute clothes. <laughs> First of all, welcome to London. Um, I have two questions, but I suppose I'll just um, not give them all at once. So, first of all, um, when addressing trauma, whether in writing or discussion, any form of interaction, is there such a thing as a line between taking back your story and claiming power and victimizing oneself because I often notice that, especially on the internet, there are people that say, um, oh, look at her, she's playing the victim and whenever, especially when someone shares something very traumatic and personal and I wondered what your thoughts are on such things. Yeah, I mean, I think that I really think it depends. Uh, in general, I think we should be allowed to write about our trauma without judgment. People are going to judge nonetheless. And so I can't control how people are going to consume what I have to say. But I know what I want to say. I think it gets tricky when we ask people, the, the only thing we expect from people is a recitation of trauma. When people think that for example, if you're a person of color, the only thing you should write about is the trauma of racism, and maybe you want to write about knitting. Um, so that sort of forced expectation of re-traumatizing yourself for $50 for exposure, for clicks, is a, is a huge problem. And so many young writers are forced into that vicious cycle that it, it's really quite depressing. But. Um, for me, I write about what I want to write about, what I need to write about, and some of that is trauma and some of it is not. And I think that when people look at my work and all they see is a trauma, it lets me know that they're not sophisticated. 
educated readers. Yeah, that's definitely something that um, yeah, yeah, nuance sometimes is too much of a people sometimes. So. Um, and my other question is that um, I've noticed that you mentioned your parents and um, like they can go to church and I was wondering about your views on whether it's religion or institutions and is it possible to, for someone to have faith in a religious institution and be a feminist and if so how and if not why not or are there too many conflicts? I mean, anything's possible. Um, there are plenty of religious feminists. Um, I think it's challenging, but, you know, the reality is that most of the world believes in religion in some form or fashion. And so whenever intellectuals try to dismiss the importance of faith, it's just like, what are you doing? Are you insane? Like, do you really think when 98% of this world believes in God that you somehow are the one person who sees the light? and everyone else doesn't know what they're talking about, that's just arrogance. And I think the same thing comes to how do we negotiate the challenges of institutionalized religion and the realities of what they do to women and people of color and the poor and frankly, uh, queer people. Um, it's challenging, but my mom and dad are deeply religious and also really good feminists. They wouldn't admit that, but they are. <laughs> um, and it's just nuance. It's just tricky. Sometimes you have to take the good and the bad. I do think when women say, I'm pro, I'm, I'm a feminist, but I'm pro-life, I'm just like, understandings of feminism, but we have to agree on some core principles, and one of those core principles is that women's bodies are um, supposed to be unlegislated. I still don't. 
Um, though I cannot ascribe to the Catholic Church any longer because they're so profoundly corrupt. But um, it's just, I would have told myself to tell, tell someone, to tell mom and dad, tell anyone. Thank Yes. 
but for some people, the unburdening is more important, and more importantly, those people don't deserve that respect. The reality is that my parents are fantastic. Yeah. If they were shitty parents, then I would put them on blast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're shitty to me, I'm going to talk about it. Um, and it's taken. Yes, I think it's important to just be true to yourself, and and again, remember, neither make yourself neither the victim, victim or the hero of your own story. Tell the truth. Thank you so much. You're welcome so much. <laughs> Hello. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask a question specifically about Twitter, actually. Um, I think you're brilliant on Twitter. And it's interesting because it's such a vitriolic space. We all know that the group that gets the most trolled on Twitter is black women. A lot more so when they talk about race, a lot more talk, so when they talk about multiculturalism and identity. You've kept on going on Twitter, and actually so have you lived, because to you. Um, I just wondered how you navigate that, how you keep going, and how you um, survive. That's a good question. I'm right. <laughs> um, in many ways, I still treat Twitter the way I did when I started, with imagining that I still have 200 followers and um, a locked account, which is how I started on Twitter. I only unlocked my account when I got to 3,000 followers, and I realized, oh, this ship has sailed, Roxanne. Like, <laughs> you have 3,000 people reading your tweets. <laughs> There's no reason to log this account. Um, I take breaks. I take breaks more and more because I do find that it can be really frustrating. But it's not the trolls that bother me on Twitter. It's actually the people who pretend that they mean well and give unsolicited advice and like who nitpick on crazy things. Like the other day, um, I did this conversation in The Guardian with Hannah Gatsby, and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and it, at the beginning of the conversation, which was highly edited, but that was the conversation, but we were talking about homelessness in LA, which is a huge problem. And this woman tweeted at me about how, how come I said, you know, people here look away, because that's the truth. Most Angelinos go about their business without acting like there are tent cities all over the place. And I kind of appalled. So I said that, and she said, how come you didn't name the organizations doing the good work about homelessness in LA? And I was like, first of all, it was an edited conversation, so you don't know that I didn't. But second of all, I can't be everything to everyone all the time. I can't be absolutely on point about every single cause. And this expectation that black women are going to be the mules of social justice is appalling. And that's what's going to drive me off Twitter. <laughs>
And so I just told myself, Roxanne, people already think terrible things about you. The truth will never hurt And that's how I manage the vulnerability. It's really, it's difficult even now. The book has been out for two years. Um, it's still difficult. And I hate talking about the book. Uh, not, uh, not in this kind of context. I hate talking about it with journalists because they just are terrible about it. Um, it's, it's really hard. And so I also just try and surround myself by with loving people. Like today, I had this irritating encounter with a journalist. And I was talking to my girlfriend about it. She was so irate. I was like, she is on fly across the ocean. <laughs> and fuck them up. She's really tiny. She's 5'4". And I was like, oh, she's going to destroy them. And that made me feel so much better. So when you have someone in your corner like that, who is like willing to take on the world, even though they're pint size, it's just like super great. And that really helps me be vulnerable, because I know that there's someone in this world that Thank you so much. Hi, Roxanne. Uh, thank you for today. Uh, my question is about feminism. Um, more, I mean, I can really relate to when you talk about diaspora and being a woman of diaspora. And kind of, I wanted to hear your thoughts on the relationship between you as a woman of the diaspora in the West and how that relates to a woman from the community you're originally from and how you can support those women's voices and kind of more about uh, the relationship between what has now kind of become, I guess, Western feminism, so to say, and feminism across the rest of the world. Yeah, I think that we have a very fractured relationship between Western feminism and the rest of the world, and it's a real problem. Um, we keep talking about intersectionality, but even the most intersectional feminists are talking about Western feminism and leaving out literally, what, 80% of the world's population. Uh, and I don't have any easy answers, but I think we need to be mindful of this, and we need, when we talk about inclusivity, we have to go beyond what we know of Western feminism. Or just admit that we're not doing that and stop patting ourselves on the back. Um, like, let's just start with some honesty. Uh, as a Haitian American woman, it's really interesting because the concerns of feminism in the United States and the concerns of feminism in, in Haiti are, are so different. They're similar, but they're very different at the same time because women in Haiti are really thinking actively about safety and bodily autonomy, as are American women. But the, Stakes are a lot higher in Haiti because there are fewer safety nets. And it's a culture that is um, very male-dominated male and where women are not treated particularly well, which is, again, the same with the United States, but different. And so I always just try to make clear my subject position as a Haitian-American woman and defer to voices of Haitian women on the ground in Haiti. Uh, when it comes to talking about Caribbean feminisms, because I know really fuck all about it. Because I haven't lived there, I was raised in, in um, the United States, I was raised in a privileged environment, I get to go in and out of Haiti at will, um, so who am I? Uh, so I think that sometimes, again, it goes back to an earlier question, how do you know when, when to speak about current events? I, I'm learning as I get older when to talk and when to listen. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, um, thank you very much. Uh, the 
question I wanted to ask is about black excellence. So you've touched just a little bit on how, as black queer women, we have to be, we can't take holidays, we don't get sick, etc., etc. How do you, when, first of all, when did you realise that? Uh, apologies if I've missed it, you've written the essay. And how do you deal with it other than being utterly hilarious? <laughs> I mean, I think I realized it even as a little girl, um, because my parents, you know, like, they're not perfect. Um, and when we were growing up, we had to bring home straight A's. And even an A minus, we would get in trouble, because they told us that as black children, we had to be four times as good as the white children. And so they did everything in their power to make sure we understood that and to make sure we lived that out. And it was incredibly stressful. So I always knew. I knew when I was in kindergarten. Um, and how do I cope with it? I, not well. Um, being prolific. Yeah, being prolific, honestly. And it's frustrating because I like to take a break. I need a break. I really need a break. But part of me thinks if I take a break, I'm going to lose all of this and then I won't be able to pay my mortgage. Yeah. And there's, there is no, I don't have a safety net. So, um, yeah, it's challenging. Thank you. Thank you. I want to first of all acknowledge what you said about you know black women not having to always be turning the wheels of social justice while also going back to what you said about um, women's bodies not being legislated being one of the core principles of social justice. Uh, you can't be anti-abortion, you can't get a feminist at the same time. So for years, for decades, people like Angela Davis have been saying the same thing about being a Zionist and being a feminist. And as Black Lives Matter and the feminist movement are increasingly becoming aligned with the Palestinian freedom and the freedom specifically of Palestinian women, I was wondering if you could speak on that a little bit. You know, that's one of those issues I don't really speak on because I don't know enough to offer an informed answer. But I believe that Palestine should be a free nation that should exist without <laughs> And I cannot believe that saying that costs people like Mark Lamont killed his job at CNN. Like, really, we're going to talk about human dignity from a people that was almost eradicated, and they don't want they want to eradicate another people. Like, how does that work? How do you rationalize that? Um, but I also think that Israel should be a state. So. I, I don't know how we solve this problem, but clearly the rest of humanity doesn't either because it remains a conflict and it seems like it's going to be a conflict for the foreseeable future. It's actually one of the more distressing situations in the world because the Palestinian people are suffering and we don't talk about it. We try not to think about it. We look away and we shouldn't.
Well, I mean, the reality is that we have to make spaces like this accessible. So many people tweeted me, I'd love to come, but I can't afford the tickets. And um, so we have to make efforts to go beyond our comfort zones that things like this cannot only be available to the wealthy or to the comfortable. And we have to find ways, you know, I don't worry so much about the echo chamber. I, because I don't really think it's a thing. The people beyond the echo chamber don't give a damn about what I have to say. And my time is valuable. So I'm not going to sort of go listen and go talk to some little Lily and just be like, hey, you should see me as a human being. So many liberals exhaust themselves with how do we reach the other side? Fuck the other side. <laughs> Make sure that the spaces where we're speaking are more inclusive, because that's the real echo chamber. It's not about reaching some mythical other side. It's about reaching people who are already on our side but cannot access these kinds of spaces. Hi. Um, thank you so much for your talk. It was wonderful. Um, I just wanted to ask, and I hope it's not too personal a question. And obviously, you know, if it is. Did you ever have a voice in your head that said, I can't do this, I can't be this person, I can't be this writer? And uh, if you did, what does that voice sound like? Like, whose voice is that? And um, when did you overcome that and how? Um, you know, no, I didn't ever have that voice. I think like most people, I suffer from imposter syndrome where I think, who am I to share my thoughts with the world? But I've never told myself I can't do this, I can't be this person. I've always balanced wild, wild low self-esteem with wild overconfidence. And uh, it's because I'm a Libra. And, <laughs> true story. And I also, I've always told myself, Overall, write whatever you want. Nobody's going to read your writing. And so I tell myself no one's going to read it, and because no one's going to read it, I can say whatever I want. And therefore, I don't get in my own way. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much to everyone that um, asked the question and to everyone for coming. And let's just give a massive round of applause. tickets and I've been looking forward to this so I went so I went to the uh, the BFI on the South Bank um, because they were airing two episodes from the new season of Catastrophe and Sharon Horrigan and Rob Delaney were going to do a Q&A afterwards so you know it's kind of like you kind of got to be dead to miss that shit. Because you're not going to catch that every day. So, dragged myself down with my good friend Al. And, um, 
Oh, it was so good. Like, sometimes you think when a show gets to the fourth season, it it starts to flag a little. There was no flag here. Like, it was still as sharp. And the, the writing was sharp. Like, the point... Like, the situations were situations that you mean you've either found yourself in or your friends have been in or family members have been in you know what I mean so it, it it's not farcical like a lot of tv shows that you see you know the thing I love about it is the way they depict the relationship how yo it's not all you know what I mean like unicorns and fucking rainbows every second. There's ups and downs. There's pitfalls, but they 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 still persevere, and and that and that's the thing that you gotta love about the show. Like, it probably wasn't the wisest thing to do, because all you wanted to do was laugh all the way through, and my throat was saying to me, if you laugh, you motherfucker, I'm going to kill you, um, so yeah, I, I, I feel that, um, there will be some penance to pay for this evening at some point, but fuck it, you only live once, right, but yeah, it was hilarious, like, just, Man, you 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 kind of wish that there was more than six episodes, because it's so funny. You just like I just want more of this. You know what I mean? I could do with more of this. It's so good. And um, yeah, like there was a Q and A afterwards, and that was very interesting. You know, it's like we we learn things like um, they offered to show first to the BBC, and the BBC turned it down, you know what I mean, and you just have to feel like someone at the BBC is thinking to themselves, god damn it, like, we've got some good programs, but we could have had this, we could have had this, and, uh, um, yeah, like, Channel 4, when they took it to Channel 4, like, Channel 4 made some good suggestions, that really help with the story, and so we see things, and we start at a place that, yo, they weren't even thinking of, so that's great, you know, but it's just like, listen, there was some lines in it that were just, you know what I mean, I, I think it's like, if you take a mannequin and fill it full of cheese and chorizo, that's basically me, is that what you're saying? Yeah, like you have to see the episode to understand. But yo, know, one one thing you do learn if you are ever wearing a neck brace, you gotta fuck in a dark room. Otherwise, it just ain't gonna work. Yo, this shit was just gold, baby. It's just comedy gold. And the thing is, and the the great thing about it is, it's not written to kind of have that 
now laugh moment. It, it's just written. And like in life, you know, you say things that are funny. Some of us more than others, but fuck it, you know what I mean? But, you know what I mean? We don't then wait for everyone around us to laugh. Well, not unless you're an asshole. Um, and that's how this is written. You know what I mean? A lot of these shows, they're written with the pauses for the laughter. And it's just like, ugh, hate that shit. But yeah, look. You're, you're gonna love it, if you haven't seen it, yo, check that shit out, it's on channel 4 in the UK, Amazon Prime, everywhere else, so right now there's three seasons that you can go and devour, and that, you know what I mean, think about it baby, that's 18 episodes, you can kill that, you know what I mean, do it over Christmas, it's a little Christmas treat for yourself, so you've got that, and then season 4, I think think i don't know it might be dropping soon i'm i'm not quite sure i have a feeling it's next year because we didn't actually get those dates um like should have been something to ask but yeah like uh you know the one thing people do ask retarded questions like i'm just like i wish they asked better questions at the q a thing you know ah and like the woman interviewing them like, she was okay, but she asked some things that were just like, ugh, but I just loved the way that Horrigan and Delaney responded to the questions, it's just great, and guess what, motherfuckers, I'm gonna give you the Q&A right here, right now, so you get to enjoy the goodness, and you get to hear the news, because there's gonna be some news, so pay attention, all right? Okay, enjoy. Stand up in London 
and my manager said, hey, do you want to write a pilot for the BBC? And I was like, yes, of course. I'd never dared to think that, but I was like, yeah, of course, of course. And so, but I wanted to be good, so I said, hey, Sharon, let's write a pilot together. <laughs> and so we did, and um, then we brought, we gave it to BBC, and they said, this is great, we don't want to make it. So <laughs> then, we brought, then we brought it to Channel 4, and they were like, yeah, we'll give a shot. <laughs> and so, yeah, we knew we wanted to do a husband and wife, Kudos to Channel 4 for being like, maybe we should show how they met. Because we totally just started in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Did, did the BBC ever give you a, a reason to write those things? I think it was... No, I don't know. I, I, they've been lovely about it. You know, they've um, sort of said maybe England writes things for their time. I can't remember. I mean, it did. It, it got a lot better from that original script. I, yeah, I would absolutely. Say. Yeah, Channel Four deserves a lot of credit for yeah. helping shape it into what it became. Mm. Um, and I think, I mean, good, great network, which the BBC obviously has, you know, made horrible mistakes. <laughs> <laughs>
really important also that's funny, and it is something that we didn't want to feel like any of the problems with the story ideas were sitcom tropes. We wanted them to be real stories that happen to real people. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I love how your character in particular, Laura, has completely changed, in a sense, like from series one and two, you, you're almost, you look so good <laughs> that you were almost like a reincarnation of the bride dog. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. sort of series three was quite dark and sad, and you dealt with really, you know, full on the nose subjects. And then that amazing end of, of series three. And so where, where's she going to go now in series four? Well, you've seen some of it. You know, you were saying characters don't uh, change in sitcoms, and I think our characters might, uh, our characters certainly age, and they might try to change, but I think the fundamentals of them do stay pretty similar. I mean, I think with Rob, it's like real life intruded in, we hope, a real way in the third season, and um, so he wasn't like a bad guy doing bad things, but, you know, previous habits and, I don't know, pathologies or whatever, um, got the better of them, which can happen, you know, even years into a relationship. Um, and you do sort of, you know, destroy each other in a relationship a bit. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, you rub off on I each other. I think, I mean, I think it's genius the way you, you flip the dynamics between the two characters yeah. over the course of mm, the There can't three. be one bad one goody. You've got to be on both their sides or angry at one yeah. and, you know, not with the other. You've got to but yet you love them both equally uh, at the same time. It's, ama it's amazing. Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, that's the goal. You know, I don't know how the show would work with the two of them not together. Um, or having a good time. I mean, even when things are really shit, they mm. have a good time and it's the same yeah. with any relationship. It's like when they're sparring when Rob sticks the yogurt there. Like, yeah. they're yelling at each other, but they're yeah. having fun, you know? <laughs> it's that incredible tenderness in the, in the middle of yeah. a dreadful domestic clash, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. Um, and you draw a lot on your own experiences, don't you, from your own life? Um, we do, we do. We've done it less as the series has gone on, though. Is that because you've had lots of trouble? <laughs> no, I think it's just the characters take on their own lives without much going through wanky. I mean, they do. You know, we, we know more about those characters now, just like we know more about Chris and John and, you know. Um, so w what happened to those characters in one series, you know, affects the next series. So there's always parts of us in there because, you know, I think that sort of helps us keep the whole series on keeper because yeah, we kind of lived it. You can be um, braver. Like we're trying to also like foist our you know cultural beliefs and stuff <laughs> on the audience and stuff, even if it might not be biographical. Like the thing with Rob was like an asshole when he goes and talks to the cop and says he's like afraid of London. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, we just wanted to make fun of people who say stuff like that. <laughs> 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 and so have you have you ever got into trouble for using something from real life? Um, no, actually, no. I mean, because. Now I, I tend to ask, you know, I mean, if it's something, not not from my husband, but like with, with friends, like if, I, if there's a little bit of, you know, something from friends, like if there's a knock or a tap, so yeah. no, not in real life, no. What about you, Rob? No, because he's never taken anything too incendiary, you know, he's never taken like a, a, a health issue or a perception, so just small things. 
moment, um, I grew up, I'm from uh, Nana, I'm surviving in Netherlands. And uh, I grew up with my dad and my sister and family. And yeah, I've lived in Spain for the last eight, nine years at least. And uh, yeah, what, what is that like in Spain, uh, uh, having your own production company? It's a lot harder work than I thought it would be. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> 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 it's like such a great idea. It's really hard work, but it, it, it's fun and it's really rewarding and it's exciting getting people to work um, with stuff and you know it's, it's great to start them all over again it's great sort of and do you, do you feel like sort of getting to be totally turned game people now that you're sort of <laughs> in an executive role um do i feel like an adult yeah i do sometimes yeah yeah um i i suppose i i just kind of just got to a point where i didn't know why i was taking over as an Do you both feel like you have more creative freedom now because of the success of the strategy? Has it opened doors? Has it opened I, I think in the same way? I think we are the kind of assholes who would always love creative freedom because I don't, you know what I mean? I think we've always sort of just wanted to continue to make things we want to make. Mm. And so it's always hard to get stuff made. You know yourself, yeah. it's just, it sort of doesn't matter what you make, really. It's always, um, Terms of creative freedom, I think. And you know, I mean, I guess maybe like as an actor, when I'm on things now, people know that I write stuff as well. So they'll be like, yeah, and then do whatever. And that's fun. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you do a few takes like they want, and then you do one like that you would want to do. Yeah.
so I did try to kill this obviously dying squirrel. Oh, okay, that's good. And it was really hard. Like, definitely, like I was like crying and like this dying. And so if I couldn't do that to a squirrel, I suspect I would not make a good shoe murderer. <laughs>
thing, I don't believe it's happened, but the observers did seem to be saying personally in, in the hospital, and it's, it's gone absolutely perfectly. I don't, I don't think anything's broken down. But um, what a devastating loss. Yeah, I mean, it just makes me angry. Mm. Um, you know, angry with her as well, um, because she had so much more to give and to do, and she was just spending their life and animal stuff with Enoch Ashbourne, and she loved playing Enoch. She totally saw it. You know, you never really had to explain it to her. She definitely was just like, just and did she's it. an amazing writer uh, as well. An incredible she writer. And Stone and all that. Did, yeah. did, did, did she ever come to you with notes? No, but she would. She would improvise. She would improvise. Yeah. Ferociously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I mean, it would scare you at first, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then we do yeah. prepare for it, and then she yeah. was just uh, so wonderful. It yeah. was so great. Um, the first scene she ever did was just, uh, I think it was me and her talking on the phone. I was just inviting her to uh, <laughs> our wedding, and we ended up in the scene sort of insulting each other a little and, you know, putting the phone down. And I think we had a title deck down on set that day. And uh, we just went at each other. Like, it was the first time we'd ever met. And, and she definitely called me a cunt. Yeah, it was both fucked up and um, 
I guess they can say it. Yeah, it's almost like at the end of series three, there's like a, they've realized like, oh, this is our pile of garbage, mm-hmm. and now in four, they're trying to like weave it into a tapestry <laughs> that they can use as a blanket. <laughs> I mean, I know, I kind of mean that though. Like, they they love each other, and it's about enduring love, but real love and love that takes work, which I'm pretty sure it all does, as far as I can tell. So. Yeah. Just try and wrap it up at the end, because in your head it might be the last series. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we didn't put them around. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. But yeah, we, we, we give it an ending. We, we give it... Um, the ending to this one, there are similarities between the differences in one, two, and three, and uh, I think the ending for this one is, is quite different mm-hmm. from the others. I really um, took on every series. I, I really enjoyed that. Fantastic question. Um, no, it's the last series. Have you ever thought of doing a movie for all three? Mm. We used to. Yeah, we thought maybe series three would be a movie, but then it wasn't. <laughs> and then they didn't just this one, which wasn't. So. <laughs> no, <laughs> 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 I've never thought of finished. It's funny, though. I mean, just because, you know, uh, for those of you who work in film and TV and stuff, we have tried to think of, we're, you know, in the U.S., people watch it one episode at a time in the, in the, I'm sorry, in the UK people watch it one episode at a time. In the US people watch it, you know, in one fell swoop and it is roughly the length of a film. So we do conceive of each series kind of like a movie, perhaps more than other TV shows might, so. But yeah, just, you know, it's going to be a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes! We're talking about Hi, Sharon Griffin. Um, hi, and I'm sure lots of other people love about your writing is how flawlessly thoughtful you are allowed to make your women characters in the sense that they're allowed to, uh, in the way that we all are, quite frankly, we all have awful desires, but you can kind of celebrate that as well. So it's really a two-part question. One is, where the, was there work that ins- either inspired you or things that made you go, I really don't, I want to do something different to that? So things that inspired both you and Ashley and the others. about support. Did any shape you work whether it was on anything that um, kind of Sarah said in her project? And I just want to know if about the genesis of that project as well and how that came to be. Um <coughs> what I was inspired by, um yeah, no, I mean I, I loved Roseanne back in the day. I just thought she was a great lead female character and in a way her you know her gender didn't matter at all I think what I didn't want to write was kind of everything else <laughs> um, because at the time when I, when I started out I would say 98% of sitcoms were written by men and so the female characters within them were just either great forgiving wives or you know mothers or you know, sort of caregivers and, and joke setter uppers and um, so I kind of just didn't want that. Um, I, I mean, I've, I've always, um, I mean, you know, I started out writing with Dennis with, with both and then, you know, writing with Rob. I think both of those writing men in my life have, have created the, the female characters that you're talking about. I mean, I can't take 
or predicate and you know it, it's having that sort of male voice in there and you know um, that really helps um, write those characters but um, with divorce what was the first part of the word? How did it come about? Oh uh, that was um, that was just a setup. Um, HBO were licensing a show with Jennifer Parker and her production company and she just hadn't found um, a, a writer to, to work with and um, that they could sort of foster it and um, they sort of set us up and we went and had lunch. Is that Marvin terrifying? Yeah, yeah, it was. I was just really worried about what to wear. <laughs> that was it. Like, I didn't come with any ideas or anything. I was like, <laughs> she was interested in and I just had to go off and finish it and then that that afternoon was when I, I found out that I just thought I wanted to write about a divorce because I felt that um, that whole world and the sort of industry that, that surrounds um, you know divorce would be um, <coughs> would be a world that could provide a, a lot of story and uh, and yeah and I did I, I don't think you should underestimate um, what catastrophe has done actually to the United States. So I genuinely think if we hadn't had catastrophe and the the, the raw, honest female characters that, that you have yourselves written, we wouldn't have Julie Holdridge and we wouldn't have Nicole Cole because those people would not have been allowed to to have those projects absolutely lead. I think you would have those ladies. Yeah, I mean they're pretty they are One of the things I love most about Catastrophe is the set. Um, <laughs> it was the first one to realise and broach uh, the need to be so honest and graphic with your content. That must have been a, a co-production. I think it was. <laughs> like, I think we both wanted it to be like, oh, Christ. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't want the sex to ever look pretty. Like, yeah. <laughs> Based on your time uh, 
physical comedy between Douglas and Sam in the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> the like, there's a sporting cast going over to Utah to support Sean Hazel. <laughs> I'm so glad everyone got to see his face on Twitter. <laughs> 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 I've never seen anything move that far. <laughs>
Okay, so the first book I read this week is, um, I actually went back to something that I've read before, uh, just because I was, yeah, I just didn't know what to read, um, so I figured, you know what I mean, I'll, I'll go back to something, reset, and, um, yeah, go from there, so I picked up, uh, Max Barry's Jennifer Government, um, and, yeah, this is what it's about. In Max Barry's twisted, hilarious and terrifying vision of the near future, the world is run by giant corporations and employees take the last names of the companies they work for. It's globalised, ultra-capitalist, free market paradise. Hack Nike is a lowly merchandising officer who's not very good at negotiating his salary. So when John Nike and John Nike, hmm, executives from the promised land of marketing offer him a contract, he signs without reading it. Unfortunately, Hack's new contract involves shooting teenagers to build up street care for Nike's new line of 2,500 trainers. Hack goes to the police, but they assume that he's asking for a subcontracting deal and lease the assassination to the more experienced NRA. Enter Jennifer Government, a tough-talking agent with a barcode tattoo under her eye and a personal problem with John Nike, the boss of the other John Nike and a gun hack is about to find out what it really means to mess with market forces like I remember when I first read this that I was like oh shit yeah that's kind of crazy because the book is kind of looking at the way people perceive things and it, it, it's that situation where, like, people let 
others tell them what they should be doing you know what is cool like what they need in their lives and and so mags kind of took that to this crazy level and we've seen kind of other people like look at this kind a similar kind of thing like there was that really good episode in um season i think four of black mirror where you know everyone's rushing to get likes and and you know it's like we've all got a kind of uber rating as it were and you're kind of running on a facebook kind of situation so it you know these are all kind of similar things and yeah so so the book was kind of looking at things like that uh, you know, and so we no longer really have our own personalities. That's why when you're working with for a company, your surname is now that company name. Because that's you. You are now that identity. That's who you are. So I, I, I kind of, I always thought that was like a very interesting viewpoint and topic. Um, I think the second time around, though, you, I kind of, I'm really focusing on the story itself and a lot of the mechanisms within the story that are um, kind of driving it. And there are definitely things where you are like, but there are other options and I'm not really convinced on the reasoning of that character doing that thing, you know? Like, there's, there's a point with um, Billy NRA. And there's situations where he could just tell people. But instead, he does these other things. And it's just like, hey, but why? Because essentially he's a bit of a coward. So why would he go that route when the easiest, safest thing is to do A? But he jumps to do D. So there's these kind of bits in the story that I've I've kind of, you know what I mean? I think, okay, you know what I mean? I'm not sure how we got to this point. But the framework of the story, I definitely like. I like that idea. This kind of uber um, corporate marketed utopia, as it were. So I find that very interesting. Um, But yeah, like some of the story... I'm, I'm I'm not quite sure about like hacks um girlfriend situation it's just like I don't understand that 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 was all a bit but you're just like okay so there was this other why didn't you do the other why yeah it makes more sense to do the other but he's not doing the other so but I, I the story definitely you know what I mean? I think it's definitely got a flow to it. So it, it, it's keeping you moving. 
which is which is good. Like Barry, Barry, you know, he he's he's got these beats, so he's keeping you moving to these beats, which I think do do things well because it let it kind of really sucks you in a bit. So I think when when you just let yourself go with it it's easier to um kind of go mm, it's fine to the little points in the story that kind of don't make too much sense so i think yeah if you can unburden yourself you you'll just go with the flow and yeah you will enjoy the ride it's definitely kind of a fun story so you will enjoy it if you let yourself really just go um as i said look i think other things that i think if you like um like neil stevenson if you like things like he's uh Snow Crash, I think it is. I think you'll you you will definitely enjoy this book, and I I, I think if you like if you like things like Fight Club, and some of Chuck's other books, yeah, I I I think this this will interest you. So um yeah. That's Jennifer Government by Max Barry. So, I I did another one of the John Milton books by Mark Dawson. This is Book Five: The Sword of God. Um, and the breakdown is: John Milton has blood on his conscience. He was an assassin for the British government for a decade until he got out. He treks into the Michigan wilderness for the solitude he needs to forget his guilt. He isn't looking for trouble, but trouble always seems to come looking for him. Morton Longquist, a man with his own dark secrets, is a deputy in a town of truth. He finds himself investigating Milton, but Longquist has no idea how dangerous his quarry is. Double-crossed and badly injured, Milton flees into the remote Porcupine Mountains with a posse on his trail. His enemies thought they, that they could hunt him down. They were wrong. And where John Milton is concerned, there are no second chances. Like, this, it's a good book. But I think, after Ghosts, book four, and, like, how great that book was. And I think the fact that it was a full-on espionage book. This one, it's a bit of a come down you know what I mean you're you were hoping that things might maintain on the same level as as, as ghosts but yeah we, we it's not the espionage 
has gone. So now this is just, um, I think, more action than anything else. But, you know, I think as the book goes on, it definitely picks up in the uh, second half. That's when you're really like, oh, okay, now now I'm in this. But I think, you know, with this one, it starts off and I don't know, it's a bit like, mm, I'm not. I, I, I guess you're not, I, I, it's hard to believe some of the situations from the beginning, you know, I, I definitely was a bit like, I don't know if I buy that, you know, like, it, yeah, it, it's not the writing is bad, but yeah, I think some, some of the situations seem a bit forced, um, yeah, a bit strung out, and 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 that makes you go. Mm. And again, as I said, look, when when you've gone from the greatness of book four, like these opening situations, it's all a bit. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. And then I think, as I said, look, the second half is when it really steps up. And you're really into it. But some of the conceits are a bit like, wait, was he stepped into? Wait, th- this is all, really? Uh, and, and so you're like, hmm, I, I don't know. That seems a little far-fetched. But then we get into some Bear girls kind of crazy ass situation and that is like okay i need to know how the fuck this plays out now because this is insane and that's great you know you're you're really locked in now you're really kind of oh yeah you've you've sold me on this uh story definitely sold me on the story the end the end's a bit strange because you kind of feel that um certain something might happen, and you're like, well, why would they not? I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah, and so yeah, the end. I don't know. Has has you wondering? I guess a little bit, but um, yeah. I I guess look. It, it's uh, it's a, it is a fun book it's a fun story and it definitely gathers steam as it goes on which is you know good but um yeah i i think it's going to be interesting to see what happens now like you know how these books proceed going forward so um but look if if you have liked the series so far definitely still pick this book up you know it's not espionage it's not like a lacaire book but it's still a fun action packed adventure so um yeah stick with the series it's 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 another it's another fun one <laughs>
Okay, people, so just a little bit of news as we go out. And, um, yeah, it, you know, it, it's been talked about for a while, but, you know, I, I couldn't do it last week because, yeah, things are crazy. But Netflix cancelled Daredevil, which, you know, people... I don't know, people are losing their minds over this shit. But it makes complete and utter sense. Disney are launching their own service. So, you know what I mean? Netflix, they, you know, they're thinking like, why are we, you know what I mean, making their programs? When they are trying to cut into our fucking business. So, of course... They're gonna cancel the shows. So, you know, I mean, Fist went, Cage went. Uh, and you could see the thing is, you could have made an argument for them keeping Daredevil because it's so popular. But then, on the other hand, you know, competition. So, yeah, they'll let it go. But. This doesn't stop Marvel from relaunching and doing something with with that series. It doesn't stop these characters now appearing in some of the films. You know what I mean? Because that was the problem. Because of the TV shows and the way it was, you know, that schedule's running and it's quicker than the films, it was harder to put these characters into the films. So now, hey, they could be in the films. So there is plenty of options. These characters are not dead. People talk like, oh no, it's the end. No, it's not the end. These characters aren't dead. Like, look at comic books. How many times has a series been cancelled or ended? Then it gets relaunched of a new number one. So think of it like that. These shows will be relaunched in some form, some iteration. And it's a new number one. So, yes, you're going to see it happen with the rest of them. So, once Jessica Jones Season 3, that will launch. And probably a week, two weeks later, it will get cancelled. The same with Punisher Season 2. You know what I mean? And it's just business. It's just business, people. So... Don't lose your shit. Don't freak out. You know, this is like, if you didn't see the writing on the wall, then you're an idiot. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're straight up idiot. But, on other news. So, it looks like veteran actor Nick Nolte has signed on to star in um the mandalorian uh you know one of the um live action star wars series that will be coming to disney plus so that's pretty um 
You know what I mean? That, that's pretty big. He joins Pedro Pascal and Gina Carano as, like, big actors coming to the series. So, of course, you know, there's no talk about his character, you know, what he's going to be doing. But, oh, it's interesting, man. It's interesting. So, remember, like, the story is set after the the fall of the Empire, but before the First Order come into play. So, it's, it, you know, it is, it's a lone gunfighter on the outer reaches of the galaxy so there is crazy scope for stories so it's going to be interesting to see what these actors actresses you know how they fit into all of this but yeah it's it's, it's sounding like it's gonna be fun um okay so the john luke picard series that CBS kind of announced a, a little while back. So it's been, um, they, you know, they've scheduled it for the end of 2019. So, yeah, that that's, um, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's some big news. It's interesting. Um, the executive producer... Uh, Alex Kirkman, Kurtzman, um, he's kind of talked about it as well recently. He, um, so he, he, um, said recently about, you know, what, what the difference between that and some of the other shows is, um, it's an extremely different rhythm than Discovery. Discovery is a bullet. Picard is a very complete contemplative show it will find a balance between the speed of discovery and the nature of what next gen was but i believe it will have its own rhythm more grounded is not the right way to put it because season two of discovery is also grounded it will feel more real world if that's the right way to put it so um yeah, I mean, that's very interesting, you know? Um, they, they've also said, without revealing too much about it, people have so many questions about Picard and what happened to him, and the idea we get to take time to answer those questions in the wake of the many, many things he's had to deal with in the next gen is really exciting. So yeah, sounds like it could be a fun series, and I know that um, my friend Cindy's gonna be extremely excited about that news. Uh, Netflix have renewed uh, Narcos Mexico for a season two. So yeah, I mean that's not a surprise. The Narcos kind of franchise is pretty huge, so. Um, yeah, you know, you. I think you could have pretty much bet that it was going to get picked up. Um, no word of when season two will hit, but, you know, it's probably going to be next year. Um, 
And finally, which I, I is kind of, I've, I wasn't really sure what was going to happen with this one because of the amount of people falling out and the problems with it. But Stars' American Gods, the second season is going to hit on the 10th of March next year. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to kind of see, um, you know, how this is going to be. Because it's got new showrunners. And, you know, certain actors have dropped out. So, yeah, what what's the tone? How is it all going to fit together? I don't know. Yeah, um... Jess Alexander is the new showrunner. Oh, no. Alexander is not the new show. I forgot. He got fired as well. So, what, you know what I mean? I, like, what is this show going to be now? Because Brian Fuller was great on it. And really gave us this new kind of vibe. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting definitely going to be interesting to see what happens but that's it people um stay tuned just for some hello fresh goodness got a christmas offer for you but yeah that's me for another week and hopefully next week my voice will be completely back we'll, we'll we'll see what happens all right keep it cool keep it chill peace okay people i'm gonna let you in to um something that's gonna be a big help because we're coming up to christmas unfortunately and the biggest thing about christmas is the shopping for food because it's insane Everyone goes crazy. It's difficult sometimes to find what you want. So, I'm going to give you a little tip that will make this so simple. So simple. All right. So, the thing is, HelloFresh are doing a Christmas box. Okay. So, in the Christmas box, you can get. A butter-based turkey with fresh rosemary and lemon. Pigs in blankets. So it's pork sausages wrapped in streaky bacon. Roast potatoes with a rosemary seasoning. Balsamic Brussels sprouts. Yeah, sounds good. With cranberries, pecans and pancetta, how tasty does that sound, truffle root vegetables, with cheese, garlic, and thyme, seasonal stuffing, pork cranberry stuffing balls, slow-cooked spiced red cabbage, with bramley apple and cinnamon, now I've made red cabbage with apple, and it is so good, so that will be amazing. And then festive gravy, a rich and delicious gravy. And um, you can also add 
a cheese platter with um yeah you know uh charcoal crackers quince chutney and a whole load of uh, cheese so they do that box they also do a box with a dessert and the dessert is luxury christmas pudding with brandy butter caramel sauce talk about decadent right and the box comes in four different sizes so you can get it for four people six people eight people or ten people which is pretty damn good all right so i'll give you the figures too man so for four people it works out 19 99 per person for six people it's 16 pounds 66 per person for eight it's 15 pounds 62 per person and for 10 it's 14 pounds 49 per person so that really makes christmas meal really affordable but i'm gonna give you a code that will give you 10 percent off that box don't tell me i do nothing for you people so all you have to do is in the checkout enter the code kevin christmas and that will give you 10% off your Christmas box at HelloFresh. So I'll put this in the episode description. But yeah, it's Kevin Christmas. Boom. Nice. I've just saved Christmas for you. You're welcome.